This is They Create World, Episode 26, The Magnavox Odyssey. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are covering the Odyssey, the Iliad, and Homer. Well, maybe not that one, but definitely the Odyssey. Yes, <laughs> we, are, we are going back to the very beginning of video games today, really, because that was the very first video game project that was started. Now, obviously... Computer Space and the Galaxy game both came out before Odyssey did, but Odyssey was started much before those two. And obviously there were also computer games that came out before Odyssey, or started development before Odyssey, even some that had displays on some kind of monitor. But these would not be technically video games under the original technical definition of the term because there was no video signal involved. But the Magnavox Odyssey is definitely what you would consider the first home console to actually be something you could go to the store, buy, and I have this dedicated console that I play video games on. Absolutely. Now, I'm not sure how many of you out there actually remember this thing or have any kind of concept other than maybe some YouTube videos of people saying, what, this is a thing? We have mentioned the Odyssey before as this thing that could just project a few basic, almost like squares, or taking advantage of the cathode ray tube in tube-style televisions. I don't even think you can actually even connect one of these things to a regular LCD or modern television today and play it because it can't have that same level of control. Also, it took advantage of the fact that cathode ray tube televisions had a lot of static on them. And if you have a, ever had access to an old one or you had grandparents with a really, really old one, you always notice how dusty those things got because mm -hmm. they would just attract static. They just generated so much static. Now, what would, the Odyssey would do to take advantage of this, it actually had plastic overlays you could put right onto the television and it would stick there because of that static, which was actually taking advantage of the technology at the time. Exactly. And that's the way that they were able to get any kind of variation in the games, because this is a system that could draw two dots controllable by the players, a third dot that was machine controlled, in other words, moved around of its own accord, and a single line that could be of varying height and could be placed anywhere on the screen. Those were the only on screen elements that the system was capable of. So if you wanted to have any kind of play field at all, you had to use these overlays. You had to have something else in order to provide those further details. And as we'll see as we get into more depth on this stuff, even then you still don't have that much variety in the games. There isn't that much interesting you can do with three dots and a line. But without those overlays, they'd have been able to do even less. And not to mention the fact that I don't even think there was much in a way of programmability with the console. A lot of it took a bunch of honesty on the part of the player, where, say, you're going through a maze. You could conceivably just take your dot, go from point A to point B, and say, ooh, I won. 
it would up to you as a player to be honest in order to try and follow that maze as best you can try to honestly say oh i didn't collide with the enemy but dot or the enemy line or whatever it is no that's exactly correct because there was collision detection between the dots obviously because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do the table tennis game or any of that other stuff that was key to the system so you could have a little bit of collision detection and with the light gun the light gun could cause the dots to disappear. The dots could appear and disappear, and the dots could collide. So there was a little bit you could do in the game itself. But right, in terms of keeping on a path or keeping the ball in bounds or scoring a goal in a hockey game, anything like that, there was no detection of the play area or the play surface. So as you said, you right, it was up to the players to be honest about how they were manipulating their dot and whether they were following the instructions of the game. There was very little that the system itself could track. And, right, no on-screen scoring, as you said, as well. So even on the table tennis game, which didn't need player honesty because you did have the collision detection, you still had to keep score manually. There was no way to do that in the game like there was in, say, Pong. You did bring up the light gun there, and I remember looking at that thing it looked like an old-style 1970s like BB gun you could buy out of the sports catalog and go out in the backyard and uh, plink some uh, cans or something. That thing looked pretty heavy-duty. Yeah, I mean, the original prototype was created by modifying a toy gun, not a BB gun, but a toy gun uh, that Bill Harrison, one of the technicians on the game, bought from Sears. So they were trying to craft something that felt believable. And, of course, this was before the time when law enforcement became very paranoid about guns looking like guns because of having situations where children are mistaken for active shooters. So it was possible back then to have a realistic-looking piece of equipment in a toy. Yeah, I don't think it wasn't until uh, the mid-'80s, I think, is when that sort of shift really turned around. Because I still have some old toys that look like real, quote-unquote, guns. I believe, like, the original Zapper for the Nintendo is gray and black and that looks more like a gun than the more advanced version of the zapper which was orange and gray exactly and that's what i was going to bring up as the perfect example of that because that was really kind of where the transition was and the zapper is a great example of that because like you said the original one looked gray and even then i mean it doesn't really look like a real gun because it's got that futuristic laser pistol Mm -hmm. kind of look to it you know it doesn't look like a, a 45 or something but you can tell that that's the period of time when this kind of fear of toy guns being mistaken for real guns was becoming prevalent, which is why Nintendo, of course, altered that. And right, when we were kids uh, in the mid or late 80s, at that time, it was still kind of a mix. Mm -hmm. You know, a few of the guns you had were more realistic looking, a few of them weren't. Some of them were bright colors, some of them weren't. Some of them had that stopper on the front, you know, that glowing orange orange stopper. Uh, some of them didn't, and certainly by the time you got into the early 90s... It, it was were... all orange, all obviously fake. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that, that was a pretty realistic-looking gun as far as things go, though, I mean, it was plastic. Obviously, if you're handling it, it doesn't feel like a real gun. doesn't have the weight to it, but it has the aesthetic look. That's right. It was a very limited system, but it does get some, some kudos for being first, I guess. The system was created by Ralph Baer, who's kind of considered these days to be the father of video games. He just passed away the other year in his 90s. Okay, so long life. And he wrote a book about the creating the system. 
he's been interviewed many times about creating the system. Today, we don't really want to rehash much of that. I mean, obviously, we'll go into what Bear did kind of in the generalities, but they're already literally blow-by-blow accounts because he kept very meticulous notes about what he did. Oh, that's good. And then when he retired, he took all of his files with him. And so he had all of those, and they've been donated. He made a lot of them available for free. So, you know, we can literally say, you know, on such and such a day, this was implemented. On such and such a day, that was implemented because of these notes. And I go into that in my blog post on the Magnavox Odyssey, which is the most recent one. It's like almost two years old now because (laughs) I've been focusing on writing and the book and not writing the blog. But I go blow by blow in there. Bear goes blow by blow in his own book. And I do some of that blow by blow stuff in my chapter on the Odyssey in my book too. So it's not really helpful to rehash all of that again. I think it's far more interesting to kind of focus on the Magnavox portion of the Magnavox Odyssey, because that portion of the history, that is, after Bear and his team had created the system at Sanders Associates, a defense contractor, and then licensed it to Magnavox, which was the company actually marketing and selling the system, and that also made some final changes and modifications to it to make it a commercial product— That part of the story is less well understood, and there are actually some very bad misconceptions about it as well, because Ralph Baer wrote about this stuff in his book as well, but he was an outsider then. He wasn't actually directly involved, and it looks like some of his facts from that period are actually wrong, and those have become the facts that have been kind of passed down, and so there's some real misconceptions on the Odyssey as a commercial product. Now, for you who, most of the younger generation out there, You might be thinking, Magnavox, what is that? I don't know that. Magnavox is actually one of those electronic producers out there. It was actually really big in the 70s and 80s. They did a lot of VCR, they did a lot of televisions, a lot of consumer electronics. And that's really their sort of coming from standpoint as far as the Odyssey. So they were known when the Odyssey came out as, oh, it's an electronics thing. Sure, primarily a television company because. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, American companies made televisions. That's what? what, what? It's it's true. It, <laughs> it wasn't all Sony and Samsung and Panasonic, and there were American the, televisions. There were American televisions. <laughs> in fact, back in the day, that's all there were were American televisions. I mean, I'm I'm sure there was some local stuff going on in Europe and some local stuff even going on in Asia, but in terms of the United States, and in terms of the big global companies, America was televisions. It was RCA. Mm-hmm. It was Zenith. It was Sylvania. It was Sears, which had a, a company that made them for them, but it was the Sears name on the television. And it was Magnavox. These were the companies, and a couple others as well, that were making all of the televisions. If we brought up before the whole Asian, Japanese, Chinese influence of their manufacturers bringing over their products to the United States, and they were able to undercut all the American production, mostly based on labor, and pretty much supplanted everything as far as general consumer electronics. Sure, and in the case of television, they also had a better product. And this is kind of an important backdrop for what's going on with Magnavox and the Odyssey, because at the time that Magnavox licensed the Odyssey from Sanders Associates, Mm -hmm. 1971, Magnavox was not doing well. Magnavox as a company goes back to the early 20th century, founded around uh, 1911, I think it was. 
and they started out in wireless. Hmm. In fact, their original name was the Commercial Wireless and Development Company. That's where their interest was. And they were also doing research into telephonic communication, telephones and whatnot. What happened is that they were not able to kind of break into that field. There was too much competition, but they ended up with amplification equipment as part of their telephone research hmm. that they ended up turning into the first loudspeaker system, the first commercial public address system. So sort of like PAs, those little like bullhorns that you pick up and you talk on one end and it spits out really loud version of your voice the other end. Well, or, you know, more broadly, if you have a microphone hooked up to some really big speakers, like, like in a stadium, like mm -hmm. they have in sports stadiums, you know. Now, where... at bat, player 76, Bob Johnson. Exactly. All of that stuff was this company, Commercial Wireless and Development, that came up with it. And so they called their loudspeaker system Magnavox, hmm. because that's Latin for great voice. Pretty obvious right there. Yep. And obviously, this was the product that became most associated with. So when they merged with another company to get some more financial support to branch out into other areas, they chose to name the new combined company Magnavox after this product. Hmm. PAs and speakers led them naturally into radios okay. and record players, phonographs. And of course, that naturally, after the war, after World War II, led them into televisions. So that's how they kind of progressed into this television field. And they were a big player in televisions in the 50s and 60s. But then what happened is Sony came along with a little thing called Trinitron. Trinitron. Trinitron, yes. Trinitron. Almost like Megatron, but better. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, they sold Trinitron televisions for years. That was one of their, you know, huge products. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that defined Sony as a company was Trinitron, Trinitron television. Try saying that five times fast. Trinitron, Trinitron, Trinitron. No, no, not Trinitron. Trinitron television. <laughs> Trinitron television. <laughs> yeah, try saying that five times fast. Oh, dear. That's a mouthful. Yeah. The thing about Trinitron is they came up with a color television system that was much brighter than the system that had been developed by RCA and had been used by the American companies. Hmm. So it was the best color television on the market. And it was also solid state, which is something that had not really been embraced yet by the American television producers. So it was also less power hungry and smaller and lighter mm -hmm. and just plain better. So Trinitron comes along in 1968 and immediately starts wiping the floor with the American manufacturers and other Japanese manufacturers follow suit with similar products. And that right there is the beginning of the end of the U.S. television manufacturing industry. Hmm. Magnavox, just like all of the major companies, was into big consoles. I mean, it's not just that the television itself had to be bigger because you didn't have solid state electronics in it. These were pieces of furniture. Oh, yeah. They, uh, my grandparents had one of these. I think this stems from back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, when you actually had a big, dedicated piece of furniture console, about the size of a couch almost, maybe a little bit smaller. That's your radio. That is the thing that the family gathers around and listens to whatever it is they're listening to. It may or may not have a record player on top. It may or may not have a cassette player later on. And then that sort of dedicated unit concept continued on with a dedicated giant presentation console for television 
I think a few of them actually did have, uh, didn't a few of them have records? And oh, some yeah, of the sometimes other that would be combined as well, absolutely. Maybe on the higher-end stuff. The ones my grandparents had did not. I miss that thing. It's uh, gone now, but <laughs> I still have these little memories of sitting in front of it, uh, watching cartoons when my when we visited my grandparents. Yeah, my my grandparents as well. It wasn't quite as elaborate one, maybe as yours. I'm not sure because I don't know what yours was like. Because it it wasn't a full fledged wood console thing, but it was still my grandparents had an RCA mm-hmm. from the 70s color television that was just. I mean, it was huge. It sat on your floor, and yep. you could. You could put stuff on top of it like a shelf or a mantle. I mean, you you could you put plants on the thing. Yeah. You put plants. You put a row of books. That could, it was huge. Exactly. And this is what the American television companies made. This is what they knew. It's the same thing that happened in automobiles, really, in the 1980s. You know, a decade or so later, it's like the Americans made big honking pieces of metal. And then mm-hmm. the Japanese came along and made something smaller and more efficient, and the American companies just didn't know how to cope with that. Yep. And so the same thing is happening here in televisions in the 68 to, uh, you know, 68 to 78 kind of time period. And it's also happening in stereos because Magnavox, as I said, got started in radio and whatnot. So they're making these console stereos, too, like we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is the period of time when component stereos are coming into vogue. The idea that you buy separately, you might buy them as a set, but you have a separate tuner, you have a separate mixer, you have a separate record player, you have a separate cassette deck, you have separate speakers, and you pick and choose the components that you want to build your stereo system, and then you can switch out components as you want as time goes on and whatnot, instead of these big honking wooden pieces of furniture. Mm-hmm. And you could place them around wherever you wanted. You could string the wire appropriately to maybe make it more of a surround sound system by having maybe two speakers on the left, two speakers on the right. I don't think they really had the full surround sound thing going on then, but at least if you're doing full stereo, you could really surround yourself with it by having speakers in front and behind you. So you just were sort of immersed in sound. Right. Plus, you can pick and choose what you want. I mean, let's say that you really don't listen to the radio much, but you love your records. Hmm. So you can buy a cheaper tuner, something that's not too fancy, but you can buy a really high-end record player and make that part of the same stereo system rather than you're kind of just stuck with whatever the stereo company threw in the big piece of furniture Mm -hmm. with the traditional console model, with the components you can just pick and choose exactly what you want, and you can have every component to the quality that you want it. I think some of them were actually designed so that you could actually stack on top of each other, so you could create a sort of like a stack in your entertainment center. Oh, yeah. Um, some of them were set so that you could still move them around and all sorts of stuff. I, uh, my dad actually had a few sets like this. He had a dedicated receiver that all the speakers got played out of. You could feed it with this multi-tape, player flash radio device and then that would feed into the receiver and the receiver drove the speakers mm-hmm. yeah we had a kenwood stereo mm-hmm. uh, component stereo for i mean a couple of decades heck the, the speakers on that thing didn't give out until like oh three or four years ago so i mean the speakers lasted 30 years <laughs> and that's that's high quality and mm-hmm. i mean 
I mean, we're saying that it was cheaper, better, and any all this other stuff, but you're still talking about what's dedicated furniture. The quality that went into building these televisions, these products, is frankly astonishing and how well they work. That television that I'm talking about that my grandparents had, they were using that up to probably about five years ago. Yeah, well, my grandparents, uh, I mean, that television was still working when my grandmother finally had to go into a home, and so there was no one there anymore. That television was still working. That was a television from the 70s, and it was still being used in 2010. Yeah, 2010. Yeah, I mean, all you had to do if you wanted to do... I think they did have to get it repaired once, if if memory serves me. It didn't yeah. just completely run solid that entire time, but still. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, even if you had, like, one component that went out, if you knew what you were doing, you could self-service them, unlike even most television today where you can't really self-service them so much, and you got these big circuit boards, and, like, one little thing on the circuit board goes out. It's not like you can pop out a transistor and put a new one back in. Right. Well, and of course now, I mean, this is a real tangent, but nowadays, I mean, you can't even repair most things because it's it's cheaper to buy a new one. Yeah. Nobody does repairs anymore. I mean, they had VCR repair shops when we were kids. Yep, they did. Nowadays, if your DVD player goes out, you know, it's it's just cheaper to buy a new one than it is to repair the one you got. <laughs> right. A, a DVD, think about how much it costs to buy a Blu-ray player. It's under 100 bucks, And then if that something wrong goes on that, just to have someone diagnosed and then repair it is probably going to cost more than 100 bucks, And then you're going to get new features anyway when you buy the new one. Exactly. It's disposable electronics. Yeah, which is wasteful in a lot of ways, but it <laughs> it works from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you've got these new component stereos coming in. You've got these new smaller, more compact, and better mm -hmm. Japanese televisions coming in. And a company like Magnavox is just screwed. I mean, there's just oh, no yeah. way around it. They are, they are adrift. They are trying to turn the ship and adapt to this new market. But when you're a big company, Magnavox was a big company at that time, and they didn't just do consumer electronics. They did other things. They had military contracts. I mean, this was a big corporation. Mm -hmm. When you have a company like that, you can't just turn them on a dime. Their longtime president died suddenly at the same time this was going on, too. So they also had a crisis of leadership at the exact moment That's that they needed leadership. So Magnavox was kind of hurting. They tried branching out into a few other things. They tried branching out into furniture mm -hmm. because they already had the woodworking capacity because they're already building these consoles for their televisions and stereos. Right. They can build a cabinetry. So if you just retool that slightly, you can make dressers, bookcases, mm -hmm. cabinets for the kitchen. Exactly. So they tried getting into furniture. They got into alarm systems, security systems. They were just looking in every direction that they could for new product. And that's really important to understand because Magnavox is, of course, the company that decides to take the chance on this video game thing, hmm. this brand new thing. And they're the only ones that did. You see, when Ralph Baer had the thing complete at Sanders, they shopped it around to all the major television manufacturers in the United States. Hmm. Not the ones in Japan or in Europe or anything, but in the United States. While some of them were very interested in it, they thought it was an interesting idea, they were turned down by everybody. Nobody actually wanted to make this thing. Hmm. With the exception, actually, Magnavox turned them down, too. The only exception was RCA. RCA was uh, willing to take a flyer on it, which is not surprising when you consider that of all the major television companies, RCA 
certainly. Well, and GE, because GE, General Electric, made televisions too. But GE and RCA are certainly the ones that had the largest and most innovative kind of R&D efforts going on in the U.S. Yeah. Our RCA's Sarnoff Labs on the East Coast uh, have always been a, a major R&D operation. Well, had always been. There's... <laughs> Not so much DK. There's no RCA anymore. RCA was bought out. I'm sure the brand name probably still exists, but it doesn't exist as a company, really. So it's not surprising that RCA might take a flyer on a new piece of technology, but they basically, Sanders didn't like the deal. And no one's gone into detail about what exactly the deal was. All Ralph Baer says is that the terms were unacceptable to Sanders. So they probably wanted to pay too small a licensing fee or too small a royalty, or they maybe wanted to buy all the patents and have complete control over it. I don't know exactly what the problem was. But the thing is that the deal was unacceptable, and so Sanders walked away. Once they had the final deal all negotiated, but before it was signed, Sanders just walked away from the deal because the company couldn't deal with that. One of the negotiators from RCA then took a job at Magnavox, just Hmm. coincidentally. That guy was a fellow named Bill Enders, and Bill Enders encouraged Magnavox to take a second chance on it, which they did. So Ralph Baer did another demonstration of the technology, and this time Magnavox decided to do a deal. So they did a licensing agreement with Sanders to release this system that wasn't called the Odyssey at this point, but this video game system that really didn't have a name, this TV game. They didn't even Mm -hmm. call them video games back then yet. This TV game. That had been designed by Ralph Baer, and they decided to take a chance on it. Probably best to back up here a little bit then and just briefly talk about Ralph Baer and Sanders. Again, I don't want to go into huge amounts of detail on this because it's been done, and it really doesn't need to be done again in this podcast. But if you're interested, check out Alex's blog and check out some of the other resources. We'll throw a few links in the show notes. Yeah, like Ralph Baer's uh, autobiographical book, for instance. Mm -hmm. There's a few good sources out there. Ralph Baer was a television engineer. He actually, his degree was in television engineering. Mm -hmm. And he basically ended up with that because he was a German immigrant. His family was Jewish, and they immigrated ahead of Kristallnacht and all of the persecution that was going on of Jews in Adolf Hitler's Germany. He served in World War II, and then after World War II, he wanted to go to college on the GI Bill, as so many people did. But he had no records of his schooling Hmm. because it was in Germany. Those records are kind of gone or hard to get at because of all the destruction and devastation in Germany after World War II. So the only school he could go to was this unaccredited school. And that's why he could go, because it was unaccredited. Mm -hmm. And they didn't care that he didn't have transcripts. This unaccredited school called the American Television Institute of Technology. up in Chicago. So that's where he went to get his electronics education. And by the time he graduated, it was a new school. So by the time he graduated, it received its accreditation. So he got an accredited degree. He did in television engineering. His bachelor's of science was specifically in television engineering. Oh, nice. This is probably one of the first specifically television degrees handed out, most likely. I mean, certainly wasn't unique, but there aren't that many of these things. But he didn't go work in televisions. He actually ended up going into, you know, defense electronics, which Mm -hmm. makes sense because, I mean, this is the period of time when you have the start of the Cold War and then the space race and all of that, when the military is really, really investing in electronics. I mean, seriously, the entire electronics and semiconductor industry really owes its existence to the United States government. 
because even though it was private firms like Texas Instruments and Fairchild Semiconductor and all of that that were involved in the product and involved in the research, the market for their products was primarily those military projects like the uh, Apollo moon landing program and the various uh, intercontinental ballistic missile projects. You know, that's where the tr- all these Norway. transistors... Yeah, that's where all of these transistors and integrated circuits and computers were largely going. And that's and, why you sort of see, even today, uh, some old military installations and you look at them and go, why are they using five and a quarters floppy disk <laughs> in order to transfer command codes around? And it's because of that what the area was all developed in. Sure, absolutely. And so much of what we have today in terms of electronics really came out of that. And in, in terms of computing and whatnot, too, uh, the Internet, of course, and, mm-hmm. you know, great oversimplification because there were other aspects to the Internet, too. But a ARPANET. big part of that was ARPANET, which was entirely government funded. And that government thing, the Vietnam War basically killed that. The transition from government funded research to corporate funded research on, on a macro scale, because obviously there was corporate R&D even back in the 60s and 50s or whatever, happened because at the end of the Vietnam War, Congress really reined in defense spending. Basically, in the 60s and 50s, after the start of the space race, you could spend that money on whatever you wanted. Somebody just was like, yeah, I want money to research this, and it'll probably be helpful for the government. And DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, would basically be like, okay, here's a couple million bucks. Go see what you can do. Mm -hmm. And then after the whole Vietnam thing, Congress passed legislation that said R&D spending could only occur on tangible product. In other words, I am spending this money to develop this item. Mm -hmm. Just free-form, pie-in-the-sky R&D couldn't be done anymore under a government contract, and that's when you got things like Xerox Park, for instance, where you had corporate R&D becoming the place where all the great pie-in-the-sky research was being done. I say that it's a bit of a tangent, but I say that just to kind of give an understanding that in this time period, being a defense contractor didn't just mean you were building radars and missiles and all of that stuff. That's a lot of what you were doing, but there was very much a culture of just experimenting with things and seeing where that takes you. That's kind of the context for why a guy like Ralph Baer, who was a defense contractor of all things, Mm -hmm. could end up creating the entertainment medium of our times, the video game. Uh, You know, it it feels like a disconnect uh, at first, and in a way it is, but there is some logic there. There is some logic. There's a lot of stuff that came out during that era. You had Bell Labs. You had NASA, which is a little more advanced from that time period, but the same sort of thing where cordless drills, that pretty much is ubiquitous in people's homes now, that came out of NASA because they needed to have a way to cordlessly work on space product in space, and you can't bring your cable out there in order to get the drill to work. Right. Ralph Baer was a guy who knew television. Mm-hmm. and he was at a large defense contractor where he had a little bit of room to play around. So he had first come up with trying to do some kind of interactive thing with a television back in 1951 when he was a different defense contractor called Laurel Corporation or Laurel. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And basically they were building what was supposed to be like the best television set in the world kind of thing. Hmm. And he was 
fiddling around with test equipment. You know, you have the TV test equipment where it puts a, a cross pattern up on the screen and you, you move it around and you see how it changes and you kind of get an idea of what your picture tube's doing and what it's capable of and how it's functioning, you know. Mm -hmm. So he's fiddling around with that kind of thing. And he's like, you know, it's kind of fun moving this stuff around. Maybe we can do something with that. At this point, he wasn't necessarily thinking game, but just, you know, maybe be fun for just a few moments to just like move stuff around the screen, you know? Right. And uh, it never got integrated. The television was already behind schedule and they actually never ended up even building the darn thing. So his boss was like, no, <laughs> mm -hmm. just build the damn set there. <laughs> so that was the end of that. But then in 1966, it just kind of came back to him. He doesn't really know why. He was, his, this story's been told by him. You know, he was sitting on a bus terminal step waiting for a colleague in New York City to go to a meeting. And he just was like, what about playing games on a television? You know, it's just one of these things. Who knows why it hits you when it does? But right. he has the background in television, and he had thought about it before a decade uh, and a half ago. So it's not completely out of left field. So that was the start of it. And we won't go blow by blow. But to make a long story short, he goes from there, and he sketches something out. He gets a very small team together, starts it as an unofficial product, then brings corporate into the loop, and they let him continue. Most likely because, again, Sanders Associates was a very large defense contractor. It employed thousands of people. Mm -hmm. So if you're saying, I need a couple of thousand dollars and a couple of technicians just to fiddle around with this and, and we'll only do it when they're not needed on more important projects, it's like, okay, why not? We're paying you guys anyway. Let's see if something comes out like, of this. It's not like they need all hands on deck every moment of every day. So if, if we're only talking a very small amount of money and a very small number of people, why not? Yeah, and it could turn out into something big. So they, they build this thing, and as, as the story goes, they start with two dots, and then Bill Rush on the team is the one that comes up with the idea of doing the third machine-controlled dot, which allows them to do the table tennis-style game. Mm -hmm. And that's the point where they kind of figure, you know, this is something that could be kind of fun. They kind of get that whole thing finished. There are basically three kinds of games that they come up with. I mean, they come up with ball and paddle games, when I say paddles, it's not like Pong with the long rectangles. They're squares. Everything, mm -hmm. it's just three squares. They experimented with circuitry to actually make the ball spot round, but that circuitry was buggy. They couldn't get it to work properly, so they just, they just went with squares. Square. You know, so there's ball and paddle, like the table tennis style thing, or you, know, you move the paddles back a little bit, and you put something up on overlay up or whatever representing a goal, and then you have a soccer or a hockey game. You use that line because, like I said, the line can move. So you can have the line in the center for a tennis game where you can put the line on the side of the screen and have both player control dots on the other side of the screen. And then you have a handball type game where, you know, you bounce it off the wall. It's a varying height line. So you make the line shorter and then you have a volleyball game. You have something where you can only do it kind of you have to arc it over the line, hmm. you know, so they came up with a few different variants there. So that's one thing you can do. Uh, another thing you can do is you can have one dot chase the other dot because they have the ability for these dots to collide and to have one of the dots disappear. Mm -hmm. So you can have one dot chase the other dot, and you can have different rules, again, defined by other on-screen elements on how that works. And then they did do the light gun concept. So the third thing you can do is you can shoot at the dot, mm -hmm. essentially, with a light gun. Or, you know, it was a very primitive light gun, or you could just shoot at the lamp next to your television and 
effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Achieve pretty much the same effect. But, <laughs> you know, light gun technology is actually probably older than a lot of people think. Light gun technology, the first patent on a light gun goes all the way back to 1920. And the first known arcade game to use light gun technology goes back to the mid-1930s. Light gun technology was mature technology by the time it was being used on the Magnavox Odyssey. So those are kind of the basic things, and then they come up with a few other ideas. It's like, well, you know, maybe we can do some educational games. Maybe we can do, like, a roulette kind of game or casino-type game. You know, kind of some vague other ideas, but Mm -hmm. they kind of get this baseline. And then there was one idea that they had, actually the very first idea they had that they ended up getting rid of, which was a pumping game where you basically press the button, mash it to make the dot bigger Hmm. uh, while the other player maybe is pressing the dot to try not to let that happen or whatnot. They decided that concept wasn't very fun, so they didn't include that functionality in the final product. But that was technically the very first video game, again, by the technical definition, was a game in which two players were furiously pressing a button to change the color of a dot. (laughs) <laughs> because at, at one point in the prototypes, at multiple points in the prototypes, actually, the games were actually in color. Hmm. The final product did not use color, and that was a cost-saving. Cost-saving. But at, at various points, it did have color. So when I say changing the, the color of a dot, that's not a misstatement there, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though the final didn't have any color in it. So they kind of had that together, and... They didn't have circuit cards at this point. The final system had circuit cards. They had like dials or switches or whatever on the device. You played different games by flicking different toggle switches or turning the dial to different spots. It's not a programmable system, and some people are tempted to call the system kind of programmable for that reason, especially since the final product that Magnavox released had these little circuit cards that you would actually physically insert in the system. Yeah, I remember that. But there's no code. There's no processor. There's not even any integrated circuits. It is digital. There was a time when Nolan Bushnell, in an attempt to elevate Pong as a first, tried to claim that the uh, Odyssey was analog technology. And it's not. It's analog would be if it just was having, you know, resistors and capacitors and inducers and all of that stuff to, to vary current or whatever. And, and this is digital. It has diodes. It has transistors. But it doesn't have integrated circuits because they are just starting to come in and they are still too expensive because they got to keep this kind of cheap to make it a home product. Yeah, we're talking late 60s, early 70s here. So Mm -hmm. even then, this stuff is still pretty expensive. And you think the cost cutting on the Atari was pretty bad. They had to do cheaper than that. Right. So there's no integrated circuits. There's no memory of any kind, RAM or ROM. It's just, it's discrete diodes and transistors are what's causing all of this to to function on the interior there. So these cards, all of they are doing is completing circuits. So depending on which card you have in, it determines how those dots and how that line behave. Hmm. That's all it is. It's how many dots you have on the screen, where you have the dots. Do you have a line or don't you have a line? If you do have a line, where is it on the screen? It's just completing different circuit paths in the system. So it's this circuit board, effectively, that you can plug in that then changes how things go. And they designed that more so that you weren't sitting there, sort of like the Atari flipping 16 switches trying to get the game mode right. So you didn't have, like, this manual you always had to consult and go, all right, if I want to play this game, I got to fit button one, switch two, (laughs) slot three button six to slot two 
Now, you know, that's too complicated for people. We can just say, here's a card, put the card in, it handles it for you. Here's your play field, stick that on the television, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. There's no programming. And it's not like every game had its own circuit card. The system shipped with six circuit cards and 12 games. Because most of the gameplay elements are defined by the overlays or by other accessories that shipped with the system. Things like cards and boards and dice and all of that kind of stuff. So you're not talking about one circuit card per game even because the games aren't on the circuit cards. All those circuit cards are saying, and I just want to make that very clear, is this is how many dots there are. This is where they are. This is where the, this is the line. This is where it is. That's all. It's not programmable. There were a few g- new games made in 1973 with uh, new circuit cards that did, in that sense, unlock additional functionality of the system. But they never made any cards that actually had new capabilities that had diodes or transistors or integrated circuits of its own to increase the functionality found in the original system. It was only serving as connections of elements already found within the system. So that's that's not programmable. It's not really an interchangeable system in the way that we would think of it today. Definitely not. Right. So Ralph Baer and his team put this prototype together, and Magnavox licenses it, and then they take over the design at that point. What Baer and Bill Harrison, his primary technician, had put together was the majority of the functionality of the system and a few of the games. But you see, they didn't really create the games, the Mm -hmm. overlays and the rules to most of the games and whatnot were actually created by Magnavox's contractors. Magnavox didn't do it in-house. They contracted with a company called Bradford Coote Design. Mm-hmm. which had done work on their marketing campaigns in the past. And so Bradford Coote Design, uh, Ron Bradford of Bradford Coote, mm-hmm. worked with another guy, one of the people at Magnavox's advertising agency, and they actually defined the games as they appeared on the system. Now, like I said, many of the basic concepts were already thought up, like because the whole idea of doing, say, a table tennis game, that was thought up by Bear's team. Mm-hmm. I mean... They kind of understood that you could do those basic types of games that I told you about. You can do the the chase games, you can do the ball and paddle games, you can do the light gun games, whatever. It's just the actual nuts and bolts of creating games and writing out the instructions and designing the overlays and designing the accompanying pieces. Artwork, marketing, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Was, was done by uh, Ron Bradford and Steve Lehner, who is mm-hmm. the guy from the advertising agency. Mm-hmm. So they did their best to try to come up with a variety of games. But as we discussed before, there's only so much you can do with two dots. And you got a lot of player honesty. Right. And the controls of the system, there are three dials. There are horizontal and vertical controls that allow you to move the dot around. Mm -hmm. Separate dials. And there's another dial that allows you to have a limited degree of control over that machine-controlled dot. Mm Mm-hmm. In order to, for instance, in the table tennis game, you have different angles of return on the ball. There's no built-in physics. Again, they tried to do some built-in velocity and control, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just, it was too expensive, you know, so they left that out. So there's no built-in physics in the game. So like, take Atari's Pong. 
the direction that the ball moves on Atari's Pong is determined by which part of the paddle it hits. The paddle is actually divided into segments, mm -hmm. uh, eight segments, I think. And depending on which segment you hit determines whether it is returned at an angle up, at an angle down, or straight ahead. Hmm. There was no way to do this with the Odyssey. If you didn't just want two paddles, like literally volleying the ball back and forth endlessly right in the same spot, you had to do something. And so what they came up with was you had this third dial and you could manipulate the ball a little bit. Give it spin. Exactly. Using that third dial. So you have three dials and you have one button. They called the button the reset button, but it's not what you think of as a reset button on a modern console or computer. What it does is resets the dot. Hmm. Uh, your dot. You know, player one's dot with one controller, player two's dot with the other controller. So that means making the dot appear or disappear, or sometimes causing the dot to launch. Hmm. So this could be used as a fire button, kind of. You are launching yourself at the target. Fire. Um, and it could be used to cause the dot to appear or, and, and disappear for certain types of games as well. What do you do with that? We already talked about ball and paddle mm -hmm. and the variations they did. Another thing that they did is racing games where you have to get to some point on the screen. So like one of the games was a Simon Says game. Hmm. And the overlay for that was two children and you had a deck of cards because so much had to be done with additional pieces. A lot of imagination. And each card would have a body part on it. There were two and three player variants, I think, but kind of the standard variant was a three player variant where one person has the completely not fun task of not even controlling anything on the screen. Mm -hmm. This person draws the cards and the card will have the body part pictured on it or named on it. I'm not sure if it was a name or a picture. All of these materials are actually, we can put some links to that too. The Internet Archive actually has all of the original instruction oh, uh, wow. manuals and, and whatnot okay. for all of these Odyssey games. So we can put that up for more information as you well. You can get some idea of how this <laughs> stuff looked. So this person would draw the cards and it would be like, nose. And he would call out what it is. And it's Simon Says, so you're only supposed to move if he actually says Simon Says. So he'd be like, he'd draw the nose card and he'd be Simon Says Nose. And then each player would manipulate their dot on their person on the overlay, and whoever got to that spot first won. Mm. So it was kind of like racing, and they got that card. And then whoever had the most cards at the end won. And then if you went someplace without the person saying Simon Says, then I can't remember if you forfeited one of your cards or all of your cards, but uh, it, it's in the rules if, if someone really cares, you know, online. So the point is that's something you do. They had another one. It didn't ship with the system, but it came as a separate thing called Funzu, which... Doesn't sound like it was really very fun, but, you know, they're trying. <laughs> and uh, the overlay is a zoo with different animal cages and paths in between the animal cages. So, again, there's cards and you draw the card of the particular animal cage and then, you know, they race. You have to stay on the paths in this one. So, again, you need a referee. So many of these games need a third person that isn't even playing the game. What nine-year-old wants to be the person sitting there just being the referee? I'm sure there are some rare individuals would find that fun, but most people want to be involved. Mm -hmm. uh, these or really more aren't involved. These really aren't right. More involved. Uh more involved with what's happening on the screen. So uh some of these concepts pretty crazy. But again, so you have to stay on the paths and the first to get to the the cage wins. So they had those kind of games. They had a pursuit game where the overlay kind of represented the the field that you're doing the pursuit on and one dot is pursuing the other dot according to certain rules. There was 
a haunted house game where there's a house overlay and you have to gather objects in the house, which are represented on the overlay. And then the other dot serves as a ghost. One player hides at some place. They move the dot to one of the, the windows on the overlay and then resets it to cause it to disappear. But even though it disappears, the system still knows it's there. And so when the player gets close to that spot, they press the button to make it reappear. And that's the ghost suddenly appearing. Then you have to avoid the ghost while you're going around and hitting everything. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. They did a skiing game where the overlay had skiing paths, just lines, you know, zigzaggy lines. And you had to stay on the path. And this is another one where the honor system came in because there were obstacles. And if you hit an obstacle, you lost points. It really sounds like this is sort of a more advanced board game almost where you have to have all these cards, you have all these pieces and are trying to incorporate board game elements into a video game and are just involving the television as part of the board game. Almost like um, in the uh, early 90s, there was a game called atmosphere and i think another one was called nightmare where you had yeah. the television and you put your tape in there and then it played the game over the course of an hour and right. the uh dungeon master or whatever did something as you were playing and would pop up and say you so and so whoever's playing you're banished or something right right yeah and in fact some of the games even had boards there was a strategy game called invasion where the overall progress was tracked on the board, Mm -hmm. and then the screen was used for various assaults. So, you know, you're moving around to individual fortresses, and then when it's time to assault a fortress, then you went to the overlay on the screen, and there were various ways that the rules played out depending on what kind of assault it was. Again, you know, it's all complex stuff written down that you have to observe because the game can't keep track of all of this. Right, Which is very board game-like. And then there was a football game. The football game used two circuit cards because, uh, again, you tracked things largely with cards and whatnot, and you just did the plays on the screen. So if it was a running play, then you just needed the two dots, the two player-controlled dots, because the one's trying to intercept the other. So you use that card. And then if it was a passing play, then you needed the ball spot. And so then you used a different card for passing plays. And so you actually Hmm. had to swap cards in and out you know, during the game, because none of the progress of the football game was tracked by the machine. It's just that you're using the dots to run plays. So, you know, that gives an idea of the kind of games that were on the system. And there were shooting gallery games sold separately. The light gun was sold separately. So, you know, where you aim at stuff on the screen, including one that was two player, which was an outlaw game where one player is controlling the dot trying to get out of town and the other player is controlling the light gun and trying to shoot him. And it's not a constant shooting thing. There are buildings on the overlay and there are windows in the buildings. And every time that the player comes to a window on the path, then he has to pause for a certain amount of time to give the player a chance to take one shot at him. And you hit or you don't, then you move on to the next window, you know, that kind of thing. These are the games that Bradford and Lehman kind of came up with. Let's be honest, most of them just aren't that fun. Or they're a novelty. It's something for an evening, but then it's like sort of like a B-movie. I experienced this, but we're done with this now. And, you know, I it took an incredible amount of imagination to even come up with that many variations of moving two to three dots around the screen. So, I mean, these guys deserve a lot of credit for being imaginative Mm -hmm. and for really trying. Yeah. (laughs) 
to do something, but it's just, eh, it's not their fault. It's just very limited technology. So these guys did the games and did the overlays and did the instructions. An engineering team led by a guy named George Kent put the finishing touches on the technology and the casing and the controls. They were the ones that decided to go to the circuit cards for the games rather than switches or dials on the console. Don't know the reason why they decided to go that route ultimately, but they did. The original system used toggle switches at one point, dials at one point, but never a separate element. Initially, they called the system Skillivision. Nobody really liked that name, so eventually it got named Odyssey, and nobody knows why, unfortunately. The name Odyssey is completely lost to time. It's really lost to time because I actually have a lot of information. I, I mentioned this in my blog, too, but a lot of new information that nobody really knew before uh, came from the trial transcript of the testimony of a guy named Bill Frisch, who was the marketing manager on Odyssey. And so his trial testimony goes into a lot of detail about what they were doing. So this this trial transcript is from like 1976, I think, is when it's from. Mm -hmm. And already then, you know, they he's asked why it was called Odyssey. And he said, we tried really hard to locate that information and we couldn't. And this was just four years after the system was released. Oh, wow. Why would the guy in a court case dealing driving to defend it? These are the Magnavox lawsuits. We've talked about them on other okay. podcasts. I mean, not in detail, but <laughs> that, that's a whole tangent that we won't mm -hmm. get into here. But oh, yeah, yeah. The, the patent lawsuits. The patent lawsuits. Right. In 1976, nobody at Magnavox could remember how it got the name Odyssey. I don't think a document exists that reveals that, and I don't think there's anyone with, alive that still has memory of why it's that. I think that one's going to be lost forever. But they, they call I like it until someone discovers time travel and can go back and figure out this little tidbit of information. Well, sure. Yeah, that's the first thing we'll do. Well, first we'll kill Hitler, and then we'll figure out why the Magnavox was named Odyssey. Of course, the Magnavox probably won't, Odyssey probably won't even exist if, if we go back and kill Hitler, because then Ralph Baer never immigrates to the United States, and <laughs> no one ever designs the thing, but whatever. Okay, then that means it had to be before we kill Hitler. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Important safety point there for future time travelers. That's right. They, uh, you know, they get this kind of system into its final form. That's kind of the development history of the system. What I'd really like to spend some time with now is the part that is really not understood well by anybody, and that's the actual marketing and selling of the system. Mm -hmm. I go into some of this on my blog, though I've even discovered a couple of things since I wrote that blog post, because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. Okay. So the system is completed and ready kind of for launch by May of 1972. At this point, Magnavox is looking to do, at initially was looking to do a kind of pretty conservative release of the system. This is a brand new piece of technology. They're not sure how people are necessarily going to react to it. and they don't want to overdo it, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the original plan was to produce 50,000 systems and to release in 18 markets. Basically, Magnavox had 18 sales territories, and so they were going to choose the largest market in each of their 18 sales territories and release the system in each of those places. And they'd have 50,000 systems to divide amongst those 18 markets. This wouldn't be like a trial test 
sort of like the no, this Nintendo- is the full release. The, the full release, okay. Mm-hmm. That's very small for a full release. That's why I was wondering if it was a test market. No, but but again, this is a brand new product, and they didn't want to overdo it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a test release, but it's it's a fairly limited release. Okay. They're only going to sell it through Magnavox dealers. So at this period of time, Magnavox has a dealer network of stores that only sell Magnavox products, at least in those product areas that Magnavox has a product. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're doing this is that they're not really interested in video game sales. They're looking for anything that can stimulate sales of their televisions. Mm-hmm. What they're hoping, and we know this from Frisch's trial testimony. I mean, it wasn't Frisch's idea. He actually wanted to do a, a wider release, but he was overruled by more senior management. The hope is that the novelty of this video game system will get people to come into Magnavox's stores. And then at that point, they really don't care if they sell them a video game system. They want to sell them a television. Mm-hmm. And maybe a nice video game system to play on their television. They really limit the distribution for this reason to only their own authorized dealers. And then they do a deal where the system is $100 which is a lot in 1972. That's like $500 plus today. Mm-hmm. If you buy it with a television, it's $50. Ooh, half off. Exactly. Because they don't really care about selling that Odyssey. What they want to sell is their televisions. So they've got this whole plan in place. We'll do this limited release. We'll do it through our dealers, and let's hope we sell some televisions, guys. And then a funny thing happens. They do a couple of market focus groups, Mm -hmm. and the system tests really well. Everybody that plays it is just very enthusiastic about it. They do the first one in mid-1971 in Los Angeles, and it's just a huge hit. So they decide to do another one in Michigan because they want to choose a more conservative, potentially less tech-savvy market. Mm -hmm. And that goes over really well, too. And so then Bob Frisch, the guy who takes over the product in September 1971, becomes the first product marketer on it, decides, I think this is going to be big, guys. He's like, this is going to be big. We shouldn't limit ourselves to just 50,000 units. They decide to at least double their volume, at least get it up to 100,000 units for sale during the initial year. Wow. Because they are very confident based on these focus groups that they did that the system is going to be a hit. I mean, you know, not not a world-beating hit. I mean, even 100,000 units ain't that many. I mean, that's what Nintendo, for instance, had in its test market in New York City in 1985. Right. In just one market. Yeah. This is 100,000 units spread across 18 right. markets. So that that's still a paltry number of units, but they're confident that they can sell a little more than 50,000. So they really up their production. I don't know how many systems they finally ended up with. There's some disagreement. Ralph Baer says that they manufactured 140,000 in the first year. As we'll get to in a little bit, all of Baer's numbers seem very high. I don't know where he's getting them from. Obviously, they were kept in the loop a little bit because they got money for units produced, you know, under the licensing agreement. Mm-hmm. So Sanders had to be kept in the loop on what Magnavox was doing in terms of sales and volume and all of that. But all of his numbers are high based on other sources. So I don't think they actually manufactured 140,000. Don Emery, who was an assistant product planner, 
uh, at Magnavox at the time thinks that they manufactured 120,000 systems. Hmm. At the very least, they manufactured 100, and it may have been as many as 120,000, though I don't think it was 140,000 like Bear said. They get this inventory built up, and they expand the number of markets. They get enough systems together, they decide that they'll launch in 25 markets instead of 18. But it's still not a nationwide release. You can't pick it up everywhere. You have to be in one of these 25 markets. And it's still very much limited to Magnavox dealers. Yet they still primarily think, we want you to buy television, not this video game. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, something to, yeah, it's a loss leader or just something to entice people into the store. They are serious about it, though. They do television advertising. They do promotions. <laughs> Bob Frisch even demonstrates it on the game show, What's My Line? <laughs> they bring hmm. an Odyssey on and, and demonstrate it there. Uh, they have a big press event in May 1972. That's the official unveiling of the system. It doesn't go on sale then. Then what they do over the next few months is they take it on tour regionally so that their dealers in various parts of the country and other interested parties as well can see the system and get an idea of what the system is. You know, they're getting ready to sell it all throughout May and then the summer of 72. Finally, it comes out in September of 1972. There's an article on Gamasutra where a guy named Frank Cifaldi tries to claim that it came out in August of 72. Don't think that's true. Now, I mean, you have to understand that there aren't street dates back then in the way we think of them today. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's a day where at midnight all the shops are suddenly allowed to put the item on their store shelves. It doesn't work that way. Stock trickles out to all the people that are supposed to get it, and then stock trickles out from their warehouses or back rooms into the store. So you can sometimes peg these things down to a week. Sometimes you can't even peg it down to that. We don't know exactly when the Odyssey went on sale, but August seems too early. It looks like he's basing it on an ad he found in... Actually, a local paper to us, Jeff, up in Edwardsville. Really? But all that ad says, uh, and it's an August ad, and all that ad says, though, is come see Odyssey. Mm. doesn't say Odyssey for sale here. It doesn't give a price. just says see Odyssey. And well, so it could that be was, they could have one set up there to entice the market. Right. It's, it's their demo. I already told you, you know, they're yeah, demoing right. it in right. advance. And right. so that I didn't seems know if to they be were doing demo. it for the public or were they demoing it just for the sales manager? Well, it was the... targeted at their dealers and whatnot, but it was open to anybody who wanted to come to these demonstrations. Okay, so it was a public demonstration. Mm-hmm. In that sense. Okay. Well, I don't know if it was open to absolutely anybody, but it wasn't just open to their people. Okay. So that was probably just a demonstration. Bob Frisch, in his testimony that we discussed earlier, says it actually was released in mid-September. Mm. And I would take his word for that. So we'll call it September 1972 that the system is released. The good news is it sells better than the sales projections. That's good. The bad news is is it sells better than the initial sales projections. That's questionable. Because as we just discussed, they decided that they could do better. So they had originally decided to create 50,000 units, and instead they created somewhere north of 100,000 units. Mm Mm-hmm. It sold 69,000 units that first holiday season. Oh. Ralph Baer, again, says that it sold more, but this is, again, all of his numbers are high. This one is absolutely correct at 69,000 because two sources of information. Bob Frisch, in his trial testimony, again, under oath and soon after the events in question and no doubt having reviewed company documents. He was no longer with Magnavox at this point, but still— no doubt reviewing company documents before giving his sworn testimony. 
said in that testimony that sold 69,000 units. Mm-hmm. A contemporary press source, there's a trade publication called Weekly Television Digest with Consumer Electronics. Bit of a mouthful. It was one of the prime trade publications of the broadcasting industry and the consumer electronics industry. It kind of primarily had a broadcasting focus, but then it had a little like four-page section. That's why it's with consumer electronics. It had a little four-page consumer electronics section Mm -hmm. in back of the broadcasting stuff. And it was basically just little news snippets, as trade publications are. You know, this company released its earnings. This is how it did. Here's a report of the trade show. This person left this company to go to this company. You know, those kind of trade things, not in-depth features. But in 1974, they reported the sales figures on the first two years that they got direct from Magnavox of the system. And in that as well, and this predates that trial testimony, because this was in 1974, trial testimony was in 1976. It also says that they sold 69,000 units in 1972 in that trade publication. I scooped that out of the Library of Congress earlier (laughs) this year. That's not good, because we're talking... But it's still the era when all your video game, it's a game thing, are sold around Christmas. That's the big sales time. And if you don't make your money then, your product's worthless next year. That's right. They're probably about, again, we don't know exactly because we don't know what the run was, but there were somewhere between thirty and 50,000 units left piled in a warehouse mm. that didn't get sold. You know, the reasons for that, it's hard to say, looking back after all this time, it's not like the trades were following the progress of this thing at the time because it was a little side-item. Magnavox is a television company. It's not a video game company. Certainly, it's expensive. It's over $500 in today's money. Mm -hmm. Think of the video game systems in the past that have had trouble selling at that price during periods of times when video games were established and people liked them. That's really expensive. And it's really expensive for not much when you get down to it. A lot of that cost is all of the stuff that goes with it. It's the overlays. It's the cards. It's the dice. It's all the little pieces they put in. The electronics aren't very complex. You're You're not buying a big, fancy board game. Essentially, in a lot of ways. You're not getting a lot for your $500-plus in today's money. The other thing is that There was limited distribution because it was only at Magnavox dealers Mm -hmm. so that the biggest retailers in the country, like, say, Sears, weren't carrying it. It was only Magnavox's own dealers, and Magnavox was not at its best at this period of time. It's losing a lot of money. It's losing market share. It's not like everybody in the country is going to Magnavox for their television needs. A lot of people are not going to Magnavox for their television needs. So that limited distribution certainly plays a role. One thing that's gone around that I think is almost certainly incorrect is the idea that Magnavox created an impression that the system would only work on Magnavox televisions. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you already had a television at home, an RCA or whatever, you weren't going to buy an Odyssey because, oh my gosh, it's not going to work with my television. I'm not buying a new television just to play a video game. There was never any official policy to do that. That's clear from interviews with people that were there at the time. There's also a surviving commercial that was on the air at least by early 1973. We can stick that up in the show notes. Okay. It is on YouTube? Yeah. Okay. That says, and uh, that has in big, bold letters on the screen during the ad, works with any 1825-inch television. Mm -hmm. Works with any. They went out of their way to indicate in their media that it will work with any television. 
I would not be surprised to learn that individual dealership owners mm -hmm. that were far more concerned with selling an expensive television to get their commission <laughs> mm -hmm. than selling a rinky-dink little video game system really tried to sell them as a pair, especially since you got a discount on the video game system if you got a television. I'm sure individual dealers and salesmen were probably doing that. It might have been an unofficial policy. Not an unofficial policy. It's just that that confusion may have been created on a case-by-case -case basis okay. at individual stores or with individual salespeople. But it might have been a small number of bad actors who were saying this, but it wasn't an official policy or an unofficial policy. Exactly. And as I said, in their marketing materials, they went out of their way to specifically say, specifically say it'll work with any television. I don't think that was probably as big a factor as certain past histories have tried to make it out to be. I think the big factors were the cost mm -hmm. and the limited release. And the other thing to remember, and it's very important to keep in mind, is you know their bean counters looked at the market, looked at Magnavox's place in the market, looked at where they were releasing it, and decided they could sell 50,000 systems. They sold 69,000. So they actually exceeded their marketing projections. It's just they got so excited by their focus tests. That they overblew the building. Mm-hmm. So exactly. if they only kicked it up, say, 20 or 30,000 units, it would have been a more acceptable level. Right, exactly. So was it a failure in its first year? Yes, it absolutely was, because you cannot consider yourself a success if you have that much inventory still piled in a warehouse. When, when you have that little inventory to start with, you know, mm -hmm. when you're only releasing 100 or 120,000 systems and you sell 69,000 of them, that's a failure. But if they had stuck to their guns and just created 50,000 of them, it would have been a success. It would have been sold out and there would have been people still asking for it after it sold out. There'd have been demand. And that's good. That derives more demand. Oh, this is so popular. No one can get their hands on it. Therefore, more people want it. You know, it may not even be fair to call it a failure in terms of its public reception. Mm -hmm. It's probably fairer to call it a failure in terms of its overproduction than its cost or the limit of its reach and, and all of that stuff. If they were going to try to make it a more mass market system, up the, the volume of production, they probably either needed to make it more widely available or they needed to cut the price. And is that you know, what they eventually did do in the second year? I would think that... Not really. No? Not really. Oh. At this point, Magnavox almost kills the whole thing. Really? Well, I mean, they've got all this unsold inventory. It's I mean, it, it didn't work out for them, you know? Mm -hmm. They thought it was going to do better than it did. And if they just didn't do the whole double production thing, it probably would have. Right. But still, you know, now it's not a hit. I mean, it's done okay, but it's struggling. And so they consider just liquidating what they have and getting the heck out. But the thing is, it does actually generate some positive interest amongst the consumers that buy it. They did, as all systems do, they put a survey card in, uh, you know, registration card mm -hmm. in with the system. And to entice people to return that card, they held back one of the games for the system as a freebie to anyone who mailed in their registration card. Smart. So they got some registration cards back. It turns out that most of the people that bought the system are actually pretty happy with the system. 
that gives them a little bit of confidence. Their retail outlets that did sell a number of them are also interested in carrying forward. So they do decide to do it again in year two. Hmm. They decide to do another manufacturing run, and they do a small manufacturing run. This time, being a little more conservative, they do okay in year two. Uh, I mean, it's still small numbers, but they sell about 90,000 okay. in year two. You got and, some of the leftovers and some new ones. And they didn't overproduce in 73. And so that was pretty nice. That did okay for them. Now going into 1974, we have to back up for a second and look at Magnavox as a whole. Mm-hmm. As we discussed before, Magnavox is not doing well in this period of time. They had been the number three television company, and they fell even further. There were losses. There were replacements. Their longtime president of consumer was essentially put into forced retirement. Mm. And they brought in a new guy named Alfred DeScipio to be the president of their consumer electronics division. DeScipio makes a few changes in what the company is doing from a marketing perspective and really tries to get Magnavox's name out there in some new and exciting ways. And one thing that he does is they sponsor a special at the end of 1973, September or somewhere around there, 73, starring Frank Sinatra, who, of course, is Frank Sinatra. He's huge, even right. then. I mean, this is past the, his heyday in terms of having all the number one hits, but, I mean, Frank Sinatra was... He's still a major celebrity. Remains popular with the people he's popular with. I mean, even today, he remains popular with oh, the people yeah. he was he, popular he, with. He's popular. Heck, I listen to Frank Sinatra music. Sure. So they do a Frank Sinatra special, and you see it's, it's a Magnavox-sponsored special. So Frank Sinatra is you know, doing his thing. They're also hawking their products as part of the special. They're also providing mostly advertising around the special. You know, this is just, mm-hmm. it's an event to try to get Magnavox some um, sizzle. And this is really something that Magnavox had never done before. Alfred DeScipio had done it before. He had been with Singer Manufacturing before that, and Singer, I guess, had had some success doing that kind of thing in the 60s. Here's another misconception mm-hmm. that comes in. And this is Bear again, and I think it's Bear re- misremembering. Bear says that the Odyssey was launched with commercials starring Frank Sinatra. Hmm. It was not. I don't think. I told you about the commercial that we'll, we'll throw up that was on the air by at least 19, early 1973. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the earliest known and only known uh, extant Odyssey television commercial. There ain't no Frank Sinatra in that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a bunch of people playing on the system. You know, there's no spokesman at all. And there's no promotional materials that anyone's ever seen, you know, with Frank Sinatra in 1972, the launch of the Odyssey, promoting the system. It doesn't seem like Frank Sinatra was involved. And then he also said that there were another round of Frank Sinatra commercials in 1974. But in 1974, Hank Aaron, the baseball player, mm-hmm. who was on the verge of breaking... Babe Ruth's home run record at the time, so he was really hugely in the news at Mm -hmm. that time. Hank Aaron was the company spokesman for all of their product lines in 1974. So any commercials, we don't have any Odyssey commercials from 74, but any Odyssey commercials that would have aired in 1974, promotional materials, uh, magazine ads, radio spots, whatever, would have featured Hank Aaron. Because again, I got this from Weekly Television Digest and Consumer Electronics. Hank Aaron was their spokesman for all of their consumer electronic lines, including Mm -hmm. the uh, video game in 1974. 
clearly what has happened is Ralph Baer misremembered because there was the Sinatra special. Mm-hmm. And again, Sinatra was not their spokesperson at that time. There was never any mention of Sinatra being their spokesperson. It's just they sponsored this one Frank Sinatra special mm-hmm. at the end of 1973, promoting their entire 1974 product line. There were no Frank Sinatra commercials. There was no uh, Frank Sinatra tie-in with things other than this special. But they do this special. This gets them some buzz. Then they sign Hank Aaron as their spokesman in 74, and that gets them some more buzz. Plus, they start licensing the system internationally for release in Europe. They do a test market in Germany in late 1973, and then they release it in more European countries into 1974. With Alfred DiCipio here kind of promoting this new kind of marketing and with this licensing going on overseas, 1974 ends up being a really good year for the system, I think, as much as anything because of the increased marketing cachet and all of that. So they reach 129000 in sales mm-hmm. for the year in 1974, which is uh, really, it's the first time they've hit six figures. It's very good. Again, Bear gives a higher number, 150000 but Bear is not I mean, all of his numbers are, are not correct because we have contradictory figures in multiple places. And I think that Bob Frisch's trial testimony is the most important for all of this. And this, again, it's is the a most figure likely that comes, to be accurate. Right. And this, again, comes from his trial testimony, 129,000 units. Still, that's good. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the system's getting a it, little bit going of up. traction. You got 60, 90, 120. Yeah. 130. 130. 129,000. So. 130. Yep. So. It's doing okay at this point. 1973, they also, these were 74 figures, but in 1973, they also release a few new games. They release four new games for the system. Mm -hmm. There's some movement there, but there's not much. It's still such small sales figures compared to televisions and whatnot that Magnavox as a whole, Magnavox consumer electronics and whatnot, kind of lukewarm on it because, I mean, they are a television company and these aren't televisions. Bob Frisch comes up with some plans to expand the product line, make a more limited version of the console, make a kind of expanded, more impressive version of the console with more stuff in it. Eh, Magnavox doesn't let them do anything like that. Mm-hmm. Ralph Baer on his own, just because he's interested in keeping the licensing money coming into Sanders, experiments with some things. He experiments with a system to add sound, primitive sounds to it. He experiments with circuit cards that have some additional diodes and whatnot on them to give it new gameplay features not found in the original box. Magnavox just isn't interested in anything that Bear comes up with. I mean, it's not like they contracted him to do it. He was just doing this on his own. Right. They don't really care. Magnavox just is very lukewarm on the system. And so it's kind of drifting along, but it's not doing huge business, even though. Obviously, the business is improving as time goes on. 1975, then, is the last year that the console is on the market. And in 1975, it might have actually done really well. Bob Frisch left in the middle of the year, mm-hmm. but in his trial testimony, they, he said that they were projecting to sell 210,000 units that year. Mm-hmm. And he said they were close to that goal when he left the company in the fall. Okay, so, so that's pretty good. Maybe they sold two hundred and ten thousand units in that year, but maybe not because that seems very high. Because in seventy five, they also for the first time released their solid state versions of the Odyssey technology. 
mm-hmm. uh, that we talked about in our console cycles episode, the Magnavox Odyssey 100 and the Magnavox Odyssey 200, mm-hmm. which eliminated everything except basically the ball and paddle games because they had learned through the arcade pong boom that that's all anyone really wanted to play anyway. So why do we have all these dumb boards and dice and overlays and, and nonsense going on? So it eliminated everything except the ping pong ball and paddle type games and put it all on a three chip set microchips integrated circuits Mm -hmm. from texas instruments so it's cost reduced and it's nicer and i find it hard to believe that when they were releasing those better systems that they also released uh sold dramatically more odyssey systems of the original so i'm not sure if maybe he was including their total projections for all video games and it wasn't just projections for the original odyssey Mm -hmm. Or if what happened maybe because he did leave in the middle of the year is maybe that they were getting a lot of advanced orders from retailers for the original Odyssey. But then perhaps when the new systems were announced, the 100 and the 200, it's possible that maybe a bunch of those retailers canceled those orders and shifted their orders to the new system. I'm skeptical that they actually sold 210,000 units in 1975. Yeah. It, It doesn't make sense. Bayer claims that lifetime sales of the system were 350,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's between 1972 and 1975. Again, all of his numbers tend to be high, so that number may be high as well. Certainly, you know, we had 90,000 and we had 69,000. So that's uh, 159,000, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll, we'll round that up just because it's easier on me. and 60,000 and 130,000 is 290,000. Mm-hmm. 290,000 going into 1975. Getting up to 350,000 would just be another 60,000 units in sales. That's believable. Okay. They probably sold at least that many. So okay. the lifetime sales of the system were probably at least 350,000 systems. It's possible that's all they sold. Since that year, you had the new fancy Pong systems, both the Magnavox systems and the Atari Mm -hmm. home Pong system on the market. It would stand to reason that not many of the Odyssey were sold, uh, of the original Odyssey. Right, because it doesn't have a big draw unless you really want to play the board game aspect of it. So I can see it selling 60,000. Maybe it sold a little more than that. I I don't think it sold 210 because that would push the final sales higher than bear (laughs) and that that doesn't make any sense to me Mm -hmm. so we'll call it three hundred fifty thousand systems over the life which is not great but considering the the rest of the market consisted of people selling zero systems because there were no other systems (laughs) you know except in 75 except in the last year uh well there was technically one in 74 but that doesn't count um you know that's that's okay for for a new product they never did uh, I should have mentioned in 74, another mm-hmm. thing that helped it sell more is they never did eliminate the exclusivity with the dealerships, but in really? 70, with this product. Mm. But in 74, they did allow it to appear in the Sears catalog at Christmas time. Okay. Sears was not allowed to sell it in their stores. But it could show up in the catalog. But it could show up in the catalog and be ordered through the catalog. Mm. So that, that expanded its reach. I mean, back then, the Sears catalog was a big deal. Oh, yeah. In the, in the 70s. Uh, so that probably helped it to that 129,000 figure in 1974 as well. Now, with the Odyssey 100 and 200, and with all their subsequent video game systems, they opened that up. They didn't do the dealer exclusivity thing with those systems. They opened those up more broadly. Anyone and everyone who would buy it. 
Exactly. You know, they did some good business on those. We don't know the exact figures for most of that. You know, we talked before in past episodes that there were 3.5 million video game systems sold in 1976. You know, probably a million of those were Coleco with their Telstar stuff, because we know that, well, I mean, we don't know, no, because we don't have official sales figures, but reports seem to indicate that Coleco sold a million units in 76. Probably at least another million units of those, or at least the high hundreds of thousands were probably Magnavox systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and they stayed in the in the business then, you know, all the way through to the crash. They were continuously in the video game market from 1972 to, you know, 1983 or 1984, whenever the Odyssey 2 was actually discontinued. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had been continuously in the video game business for that entire period of time. In the home, Atari was in that entire period of time, but that's counting their arcade stuff, too. Of course, by that time, you know, another kind of impact of the problems that Magnavox was having is that in 1974, they were purchased by Philips, the Dutch electronics giant. Starting in 1974, they're a division of Philips. Mm-hmm. That gets them a little more play in Europe, obviously, because Philips is huge in Europe and they Making wanted an entree. They wanted an entree in the U.S. market and Magnavox was losing money. So it was, you know, that's why that happened. That's basically the the story of the Odyssey. It wasn't that great a system. It wasn't that great a gameplay, and its sales weren't really the best, but, you know, they were there, mm-hmm. and they kind of got the market started. And, of course, it's because of the Odyssey that we got Pong. Mm-hmm. And so the legacy of the Odyssey is far bigger than just its sales figures or its gameplay would suggest it's always that those little things those little foundation moments that then build an entire empire mm-hmm. well is there anything else to cover well i think that about does it all right what will we be going over next time well uh as i said it's because of odyssey that we have pong mm-hmm. and it's because of odyssey leading to pong Uh, as well as some other stuff, that we have a series of legal disputes that continue on for, oh, almost two decades over the patents on the Magnavox Odyssey. So, Do we get to hear the story of where all that testimony came from? Yeah, so kind of a continuation of this Odyssey thing is, is looking into these lawsuits and not so much giving recountings of the lawsuits themselves, but kind of understanding what these patents were, what they covered, what they didn't cover, Mm -hmm. what was being stolen from stuff that they had patented and who got sued when and why and kind of how it ended up for some of these companies. Is it going to be as entertaining as the Tetris one? Not even close, because that's just (laughs) insane. But there there were some interesting twists and turns along the way, but not not like the Tetris story. (laughs) All right. Well, we will cover that and more next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.com podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes you can check out alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on twitter at tcwpodcast intro music is airplane mode by josh woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is 
Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Thank you.